Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. Uh, we are joining you today for more discussion of the Lord of the Rings trilogy as we continue. We can't stop. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you know, we've we've given many weeks to discussion of the Peter Jackson trilogy, and you know, which is only appropriate. We took a long time to get around to it, sort of on yeah. purpose. Um, but uh, equally on purpose, we're wanting to sit with it for a while and really think about the kind of adaptation choices that it um, that it has been making and, and the kind of patterns that we can see there. Um, and I think yeah. it's really important for us to do that, too, because for so many people, it is the definitive visual that they have yeah. in their minds when they think about Lord of the Rings. You know, so many of us came to the series via Peter Jackson's right. trilogy. So it's, you know, quite powerful as to being aware of what came before it, but also influencing what came after it and knowing its audience and things like that. And even like, you know, we're going to keep talking about it tonight, but I still feel like we're only skimming the surface, you know, right. like right. I still feel like we could do this only about this trilogy for the next like three years. Right. No, exactly. I mean, there's so much more, uh, there's so much more we could do. Eventually we will talk about some other things. Um, but, um, but the, uh, what we wanted to cover today is something that we, a huge topic about Peter Jackson's trilogy that we haven't really talked about yet. And that is how he handles the bad guys. Um, thinking specifically of Sauron, the Ringwraiths. Uh, and I, I would I would put Gollum in a separate category. I mean, yeah. that I think is really a separate question and a really, really interesting one. Um, uh, but and also I wanna, the Urukai and Orcs. Yeah, the Orcs the, as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, but um, can we start with Sauron? Because that's kind yeah. of like the big, the big bad deal, right? And it's not only the not only is he the biggest deal, obviously, as far as bad guys are concerned, but he's also one of the most startling adaptation choices, basically, yeah. that Jackson made. Um, and what I mean is representing Sauron, or at least appearing to represent Sauron as a giant flaming eyeball at the top of the tower. Right. Right. Um, and I That's say appearing to... Yeah, it's a choice. It's That's striking a striking choice. choice. Um, yeah. On the one hand, I say appearing to represent, because of course, like, obviously we get, you know, in the in the prologue sequence, we get a corporeal Sauron armed and, and, and wielding his weapons, right? Um, but we never see a corporeal Sauron again. Now, I know that there are those the scenes that were cut, right? When they were going to have him come out and come into battle again at the end um, and Aragorn be fighting with him, you know, while Frodo was at the cracks of doom um, in order to kind of do that, you know, a much more explicit recapitulation of the, um, of the, the opening Rachel. sequence. Mm -hmm. um, but of course that didn't happen, right? Um, that didn't happen. And instead what, we're left with is the impression I mean since we never see Sauron in corporeal form or even am I, am I right to say we don't even get any indirect evidence of him being anything else like I don't I don't I mean basically I mean I I know from years of conversations with people who know the films and not the books that very many people left the films under the impression that the flaming eyeball on top of the tower was the manifestation of Sauron himself. You know, Sauron is a giant flaming eyeball is kind of, uh, at the very least, it is an interpretation of the film that is 
permitted, right? That is not being right. guarded against in any way. Um, that is a, a safe takeaway because, yep, that's that's what you can see. Right, exactly. And Phil, that's exactly right. Phil said, was asking, does uh, does movie Gollum tell us how many fingers are on the black hand? That's exactly what I mean by indirect representation, right? So uh, Phil is referring to the passage in the book when Gollum is recalling... Um, it, you know, the ring being cut from Sauron's hand comes up and Gollum says, yes, yes, there are only four. Uh, he has only four fingers on the black hand now, but they are enough. Right. Um, suggesting that Gollum still not only sees Sauron as corporeal, but like the idea that Sauron would have a corporeal form that Gollum would know about having been captured and tortured in, 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 you know, Sauron's halls, it would make sense. He would actually have met Sauron. Um, and of course, it also, by the way, the fact that Sauron is missing a, hand, a finger on his hand suggests that there's some actually corporeal continuity between old Sauron and current Sauron, right? The, as um, uh, Madagoc was saying, uh, the him imploding and turning to dust when the ring is cut off his hand at the end of the prologue um, yeah. is also a very important and distinct choice that they made, which is not... Um, Tolkien says little about uh, this, although it, it, all it says, it, it, you know, there's the reference to Isildur cutting the ring from Sauron's hand, um, but we're not sort of told more. We, we don't get a physical description of that of yeah. that moment and exactly what went down there. Um, but in any case, as I say, like the, this idea of, you know, I mean, if you're bearing scars that you received in a, you know, in an earlier battle, there's some kind of real continuity with your, uh, with your physical form. Anyway, that's what that's what I meant by that's a good example of indirect evidence in the in the books that he does have uh, a clear humanoid corporeal form uh, at the time of the Lord of the Rings uh, events. Um, so again, now the point about the flaming eyeball, the primary point about the flaming eyeball is not to say they made a change, they made a change. Because in fact, you can argue that one of the effects of the change that they make is to actually make Sauron more present than he is in the book. Um, we get a lot of speculation about what Sauron is doing and thinking. We get very few encounters with Sauron. We get few encounters and fewer sightings of Sauron in the book. He is an almost entirely absent um, menace. Uh, he is a continual menace on the frontier, but we never see him. We never meet him. Um, and this is, it's one of the things, uh, you know, Maggie, I know that this will be a, a comparison that will resonate with you, but I think of the difference in the choices that J.K. Rowling made with Voldemort, right? When um, when Voldemort was, I mean, in the first few books, he, you know, the first three books, he is this absent, you know, this menace, right? This, you know, this name and this reputation, and he is out there. I mean, again, we see him in the back of Quirrell's head, and you know, like in in, in the several, uh, and of course we meet Tom Riddle, but again, it's n none of them are, you know, from the diary in the source of, you know, we get these like indirect connections. But until, you know, the end of the Goblet of Fire, we don't have him returning and then acting as a character, which we get, you know, in right. the, and, you know, and including lots of shots and sequences of just him or just him talking to the Death Eaters or whatever. Um, J.K. Rowling embraced the challenge of trying to make him 
sort of stay as scary and intimidating a big bad guy figure while allowing him to walk out into the middle of the stage, essentially. Whereas yeah. Tolkien makes the choice of never doing that. Like, Sauron never steps out onto the stage. We get a few cameo um, glimpses of Sauron, right? Like in the, when Pippin looks into the Palantir, yeah. he has an encounter with Sauron, and we're told about it, right? We're given a little bit of a perception from Pip, from Pippin's perspective that we don't get the whole scene from Pippin's perspective. And then we get his account, uh, his description of the encounter to Gandalf afterwards, which is a little bit more full, but again, certainly very far from Sauron stepping onto the stage and getting a, you know, uh, think of the, think of the scenes that we get, you know, especially in the Deathly Hallows, right. Of Voldemort out doing stuff and, sitting at a table with all the Death Eaters and talking mm -hmm. about their plans and stuff, right? There's, there's, there's no analog to anything like that in the Lord of the Rings books. There's, I'm, I'm, I love that you're doing this comparison because I feel like this is a really interesting one for us to kind of dive down with all four characters, book mm -hmm. Voldemort, film Voldemort, film yes. Sauron, book Sauron. You yes. know, there's there's a lot of decisions between page to screen for both of these villains that the corporeal form is a really big deal. And I remember yes. one of the biggest pushbacks of the fandom at the end of the Harry Potter series was when Voldemort dissolves into dust. Yes. That was completely against the feeling of what people expected because Voldemort made himself less human by the, the things he was doing to his body, made himself not whole, yes. made himself... Yes corrupt and then at the end he just has an empty shell there's no power there it's a dead body you know right so that was kind of the impact so not having that on screen was a big change yes the the degrading himself i don't know if that's the right word but like the lessening of himself in a human form made him almost less of a threat in one way because you mm -hmm. could see him cutting himself down weakening himself up sauron is just so powerful because he's so ever present, right? Like, mm -hmm. and the way that it was brought into the film, um, I think somebody even said it earlier is the, the Saruman uh, comment that he's not on screen much, um, but Saruman is, uh, Sauron's ever present. You know, right. like there's there's something that's that's always going to be there. And I know that's about Saruman, but I think that about Sauron, like yes. Saruman's not there much on screen neither is Sauron, but Sauron is there everywhere. We have the eye, we have the palantir, we have the speech when you touch the ring, we have the dark whispers that come, you know, in, in dreams. Like there's so much power of Sauron that comes in other places that we can't quite trust anywhere to be Sauron free. Whereas mm -hmm. I feel like Voldemort was very like, there he is. Right. <laughs> you know, right. his, his powers right. were a little bit more limited in terms of being omnipresent. <laughs> well, and that's that's the I mean, in the books, especially that felt to me very sharp um, in the Harry Potter books, um, the, 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 the difference between one through three and four onwards. Right. When he took the you know, when he was brought back in corporeal form, I mean, that <laughs> he that he might show up like under somebody's turban and you just don't know. Right. right. Is actually right. way more intimidating. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um uh, anyway, I, 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 so yeah, I think that that's... And you see that in like every horror film, like yeah. revealing your monster is the biggest faux pas you could do, you know, right. like, and that's why it's so protected when you're filming a horror film, you never show the monster because they're immediately not going to be scary. So right. if you can hide that for as long as possible, the more familiar possible, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you can hide that for as long as possible, the scarier it gets. Right. So, so this is why I think the depiction of Sauron, the flaming eyeball, 
is such a fascinating adaptation mm. choice, right? Because it feels to me like, you know, the Jackson team were basically trying to have their cake and eat it too. Right. On the one hand, we want to keep him at work. We're not going to have him coming out. We're not going to get like Sauron lounging and talking with the Nazgul and, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, so that that that's not going to happen. Right. Um, we're going to keep him off screen. We're going to keep him um, sort of indeterminately scary in that way. And yet we want a visual reminder of him. Like right? yeah. we, we want uh, we want a, a visual indicator of his malevolent will at work, right? We don't want there just to be a static tower that you're seeing in the distance, right? Or like the, you know, want him to be only a name. Um, and so by showing the eyeball, right? The eye, of course, I mean, even, even apart from, I mean, obviously I know the eye is like the symbol of Sauron in the books and everything, but even apart from that, like an eye is you know, like the most animated part of a, of a person's face, like it yeah, suggests, like, you know, the, uh, the motive and the will, right? So, and the way that even like the beam of light spreading out from, you know, the, mm -hmm. the way that that visually, it does effectively visually capture this idea of, you know, the mind and will of Sauron are always at work. He is, he is watching, he is, mm -hmm. you know, so even where it's, you know, what, what you were just saying, Maggie, about the corporeal body, the limitations of the corporeal body, right? Um, like there he is over there, <clears throat> which also yeah. means by extension, he's not over here, right? Um, I mean, it would be hard to have the same kind of, um, I mean, th think about what it means to hide from him, like to conceal what you're doing from him. Again, a major, uh, I mean, I didn't, sorry, didn't really plan a protracted Harry Potter uh, comparison, but it, but, it. But, it, but it works. Yeah, I it mean, works. it kind of works. Because again, think about, especially in the, in the Deathly Hows, how there is this protracted hiding from Voldemort, like the camping sequence, right? The, yeah. the, the hiding, hiding what we're doing from Voldemort and his followers. Uh, and of course, there's all this emphasis on the secrecy of Frodo's mission uh, to destroy the ring as well. Um, but again, like what it means to hide is it's different because yes. of the way in which Sauron is just a distant remote will and you don't know all of what he sees you don't know of and whereas, you also, yeah and you don't know all the forms that he could be taking and again right. coming at it from somebody that's not imbued in in the Tolkien world when I was however old I was when these came out 19 no 21 21 um I hadn't grown up with all of the lore in my head so literally I'm just seeing this eyeball that can see things right this ring that can speak to you and this ball that can show you stuff and hear your, your thoughts and voices as well. That's only three things. I bet there's more, you know, so right. like you can't trust anything. Right. right. I assumed the rocks were talking to him at that point. So, right. you know, nowhere is safe and that just makes it so much more ooh, creepy. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it, it, it's an interesting distinction. Um, uh, Meow indeed was saying that um, I, they like the flashes of the eye, but didn't like the eye moving and having long screen time. Um, and yeah, I agree. And there's something about people... like the eye kind of like yeah. darting around the way that it is. Um, and I remember when the tower was falling and the eye panics and is looking yeah. down really fast, people were laughing because it is right. pretty funny, you know, like that's, that's an oh, oh shit, oh shit, you know, that's a real <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> moment. Of, it feels yes. more like a Monty Python sketch. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that in particular was comical. Um, but even the moment, but, the moment the, but when, got the feeling across too. It does. I mean, so when when the eye shifts, the moment. Now I agree that that 
moment is comedy, but the moment that always felt silliest to me, the 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 flaming eyeball moment that seemed to me most to undermine the the sort of evil mystique of Sauron, right? Is the moment when they're almost up when they're on Mount Doom, right? And the eye is coming around and you're seeing the red spotlight, right? Yeah. You know, it's that moment when Frodo is like where his drops feet go over. Out yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he, he falls over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, whatever. He's going through a lot. I'm not trying to make fun of Frodo right now. Agreed, there. but he, he legit defies the laws of physics, right? Like that's right. that's not how people fall. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> but but even apart from that, even if he had fallen less weirdly, yeah. um, the mere idea that like all you've got to do is hunker down behind some rocks and yeah. you can can set oh, like, seriously. If that's all it needs, right, is like some rocks between you and Sauron, what were they worried about the whole time when they were on the other side of the mountain range, right? Okay, I mean, agreed with you, but just to play devil's advocate, how also, like, how well did that also play on screen? Like, right. we get it. You needed some suspense. You needed this moment where they're going to get caught. You needed this, we have to get from A to B. And while they're getting from A to B, oh my God, you know, like it worked. And it only took like, you know, 10 seconds of screen time to make sure that happened. It was yeah. just a little cheesy. That's all. It is. But 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 yeah. but the sort of the direction of the cheese, right? Was and again, and in some in, to some extent, it was moderated by the fact that it happens. So I mean, this is the last minute, right? I mean, yeah. um, had that had had an event like that occurred earlier on, because again, my, my problem is that it undermines the whole concept of Sauron. I mean, if he is mm-hmm. literally only a searchlight, right? which can be foiled by some rocks, then he's not scary at all. Then, in fact, yeah. that, that shows the will of Sauron is extraordinarily limited and really not a threat, especially, I mean, if you're, you know, you're more than a few hundred yards away, you're fine, right? So, it, yeah, it's, 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 um, it was, it was, um, but again, it happened so far at the last minute that it's not like, I'm like, oh, my whole concept of Sauron is now shattered, like, because, you know, uh, and then yeah, and, think... and the drama moves away. Like we're now, a bit, it's all about Frodo's choice yeah. and Gollum. It's all about Frodo and Gollum and Sam at the cracks of doom. The presence of Sauron, the threat of Sauron is really kind of secondary once they go inside to the cracks of doom. I feel like I couldn't look at that in isolation though. Like that moment was singularly the spotlight, but the threat of Sauron was never just the spotlight either. I mean, a spotlight can't command armies. A spotlight can't build this world. So I guess you kind of, even just subconsciously, because I hadn't thought about a corporeal body when I was first seeing it, I guess subconsciously you would still assume there's something else going on besides an eye in a tower. You'd think. Yeah, I mean... You'd think. There kind of does come the point, I think, where many people reach the point where they said, wait a second, if he's just manifesting as a flaming yeah. eyeball, how could he wear a ring? Like, right. You know, where's the risk here? Makes, yeah. How and that even and why sense? would people want to follow him? Because he's stuck in that tower. You can't follow it. Yeah. 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 Um, so he's got, he's got no hand and he's got no legs. What's, what's there to worry about? Who right? are we following? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm so again, like once you really think it through like that, and that's but why it, I was saying again about like apparently representing yeah. him as a ball, as a, as a flaming eyeball. I was like, I don't even think the film is really asking us to believe no. that that is Sauron or that is Sauron's physical manifestation. But all those um, things kind of feed into the psychological power of Sauron, which I thought was more scary than anything else. So 
all those things kind of made me feel like I could be sucked into the will of Sauron or, you know, become evil just by being present or being around, you know, there were so many threats that that was scarier than seeing a physical body. If, mm-hmm. if Sauron with his physical body had come out, then that's a thing that can be defeated. Yeah. What they were showing us was not a thing that could be defeated. Maybe it could, but not easily, not clearly. I couldn't figure out how. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think that I I think I want to say, I mean, I was I by saying they were trying to have their cake and eat it too, that sounded like a criticism. And I don't mean it as a criticism. Mm-mm. Like they get both. Yeah. I'm not sure yeah. that they didn't thread the needle in an almost optimal way. It's really hard to do both. And this is just, this is one of the things that is the, the, the creation of this sort of like lurking threat and menace um, with uh, exactly as you were just saying just now, Maggie, like we know there are things that it's, it is, he's making commands, right? His will is pushing his armies forward. He's, you know, the, even the, 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 um, as, um, uh, Madagat was just saying again, um, the the darkness that spreads over you know the land is, mm. is clearly done you know by his will as well. Um, the power the the, the ring rays clearly get a a level up when they return um, at the end. A level up, um, I like that. Yeah, I mean they've been they've been um, they've been supercharged. They they've been buffed. Uh, by Sauron uh, coming around the second time, um, so we, we and so we, and the, the book is able to convey the ways in which, you know, he is actively involved, and the will of Sauron is is you know this sort of active oppression and, um, as well as this sort of indirect force. It's harder. I mean, um, so many of those things are harder to convey on screen, um, and their choice to say we want a visual hook that we can come back to, right? A visual hook that we can get to. Um, yeah. And obviously that they succeeded in having the flaming eye at the top of the tower be like a visceral visual association with lurking evil um, yeah. is the success of that is manifested in all of the memes and uh, iconography that has imitated and merchandise it in and, the 20 you years know, afterwards. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you, you see that silhouette, you know, exactly. You know, when, when I was at Sarah's house a couple weeks ago doing the broadcast with her, I knew I was at the right house because I could see her Lego version of that from outside. Like, <laughs> right. I, you know, it's that like, oh, yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so, so like that it, clearly they succeeded in having that image capture you know yeah. uh, a significant element of what Tolkien does in the book in building Sauron as a threat um so i mean I, there are obvious limitations um and the uh, there is they were walking a line where they were taking a risk that it would look Silly or seem silly again. Like if you think about it, it's like he, that can't be him. Like what's again? He's got no hand, right? How could he wear a ring? Um, but um, um, anyway, I I I think that um, and then of course the line of silliness. Again, I think they took a step over in the two scenes we talked about before: the falling of yeah. the thing and of the you know the simple the spotlight thing and the crouching down behind rocks. Um, and again, I, as a moment of dramatic 
and again, I, let me give credit to that scene again for what it is accomplishing, right? What in the book, Gandalf and Aragorn both talk explicitly about drawing the gaze of Sauron towards them, right? towards the Black Gate, and therefore away, for, you know, to keep him, his gaze away, his focus away from his own realm and from Mount Doom as Frodo uh, moves towards it. Um, and so in that moment in the film, they dramatize in this, like, more immediate uh, and, you know, uh, sort of with amped up tension moment, right? Of like, where his gaze is literally visibly, like we can see the red light, right? His gaze is literally scouring Mount Doom and then, you know, the horn sound at the Black Gate and he's like, whoosh, you know, and he yep. switches around yep. and he's looking at the Black Gate and he never looks back at Mount, at Mount Doom. Like that's, it is accomplishing something important for the plot to show the efficacy of the stratagem of Aragorn and Gandalf and the significance of their sacrifice, basically, in going to the Black Gate at all. Um, and then, of course, we see that reinforced when you can see, you know, when the gates open, you can see Barad-dur in the distance, which, how visually stunning was that? The opening Amazing. of the gates. Yeah, that shot. Oh, my goodness. And that super wide pan with yes. just, I mean, the scale of it alone, you're, it just puts you at awe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then you're seeing the beam of light like shining mm -hmm. towards you, right? With that, it's so good. Um, but, and seeing um, the armies yeah. come out with that small sect of good guys going, "Oh right. crap!" <laughs> you know, just the right. visual impact right. of that. And I love how that's one of the it's one of my favorite places. Um, uh, that's one of my favorite places where I can feel this didn't happen to me all the time in the Lord of the Rings films, but sometimes there's like a visual moment on the screen and like a line of the text, like, you know, where I'm like, I would put any money down on, like, I know exactly what line of text they were, they, they had in mind when they, they drew that here. up. Uh -huh. Right. Uh -huh. um, and that was uh, about during the, during the captain's debate, when they're talking about like, you know, we, we, we can't bring a serious army to Mordor. Like, isn't Sauron just going to laugh at us if we come to the black gate um, and swat us like a fly? Um, you know, in disdain, and 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 Gandalf says, "No, no, no! He will try to trap the fly and take the sting." Um, and that, yes, like the orcs moving around to engulf them, is like mm -hmm. it's such a cool visualization of exactly what Gandalf predicts is is, is going to happen. So again, there's so much really, really wonderful that's going on there. Um, and again, what I'm trying to emphasize is, like, I I feel like we can I, I we can see what they're doing. Like, we can see not only how this is working within the film but how they are attempting to render visible on the screen many of these things that uh, that Tolkien himself was doing. So if I, my, my quibble, honestly, and it's really just a quibble um, about that moment of the hiding behind the rocks, is simply that hiding behind the rocks works to conceal them, right? Had the spotlight of his vision, which is already like on the cusp of corny, right? But had the spot red spotlight of his vision been moving up towards them and then stopped short of where they were and gone off, I would have been absolutely fine with it. It was like that he does see them or would have seen them if they hadn't hunkered down behind a boulder yeah. at that point. That, that yeah. to me, goes too far and undermines it, but... And that he can see from thousands of miles away and know that somebody put the ring on their finger, but he can't see through a rock. Yeah, exactly. Know? It's it's mm. it, that's 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 precisely where I mm -hmm. felt 
that in attempting to build that last like moment of you know to make it even more tense and even more suspenseful um they went one step too far there and and kind of undermined it for me um but again that's at at the end of the day that's a quibble you know and i do i do think it's really interesting what they're doing and um so yes i think that there are there are necessary well i mean it's to use the same kind of language we've often used there are there are risks and rewards, right? There are, uh, you know, there are costs and benefits to every choice that you make, right? And the risk, the cost of the flaming eyeball choice is that you you risk uh, kind of comically pigeonholing Sauron, mm. right? Making like, he's just a flaming eyeball and therefore not... A limitation, I mean, yeah, not really that scary. I mean, what are you going to do? Flaming eyeball, you know, like, uh, you know, <laughs> come down here and, and I mean, like, yeah, it's, 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 it's a risk, but you can see they thought that through. Yeah. Yeah. But you can see they thought that through and they're like, yeah, that would suck if that's all he did. So right. let's make it more mysterious. Let's make it more powerful. Let's make it a little questionable. You know, I really did not think that there was a corporeal form of Sauron anywhere in this film until years later. Right. When somebody mentioned it and I was like, nah, wait, you know, and there's no explanation between right. the one we see at the, the introduction with the finger getting cut off and the eyeball in the sky. We don't no. know. Yeah. So yeah. because there's yeah. no explanation, you have all that freedom, you know, as a viewer, but also as a creator to do what you want with that space. So because it hasn't been clarified, you can roll with it. So I'd be curious to hear what you're, you know, now that we, we know there was that possibility that a, a human form Sauron was going to come out and have a fight. I'm quite glad they didn't include that scene because that would have wrecked everything we just talked about in my mind. But mm-hmm. that might also have been very satisfying to have flesh well, and bone. I can certainly see. So on the one hand, I think and we were talking about ways in which keeping the bad guy off screen kind of makes it more scary when you're just forcing either readers or viewers to use their own imaginations right um as the characters are doing right what if sauron knows what if sauron can see us from where he is what if like you know is there any way to hide from him can we be safe we don't we we can't even know right um uh that's to have viewers in a similar kind of guessing space and using their own imaginations to imagine the worst is um is, is 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 much more powerful but in the final act right at the last second to have like but you know and sauron came you know at the end you know to have him yeah. respond to that um by coming forth you know with a weapon in hand uh to fight in that last battle might have been cool like that might have. Mm. I don't think that that would have undermined it. I mean, if, if you do it right, it could just simply build up that final moment until that final moment is amazing. But then, how do you not? How do you not? How, how do you follow that up? Like, how do you? Yeah. How do you? How do you sustain the entrance? Might have been amazing, but how do you sustain it after the entrance? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be- unless you can edit cut together, timing-wise, that the battle is happening exactly coinciding with the ring going into the fire and we either see a physical destruction of Sauron or we don't see a physical destruction but we see the ring and the tower fall and everything else fall so we kind of assume but you'd really have to cut that together carefully which is exciting like that's a nice idea 
And I think it would be cool to see a battle with Sauron. A hundred percent. I want to see Aragorn and Gandalf beat the crap out of that. Like that would be really fun to watch. Right. But in terms of story, I don't know how that would serve because it's not what we saw, but that's a really different way to think about it. Right. But see, actually, that's another tension that I think like what you just said, I think is another tension. What you would, what you would have wanted yeah. is to see Aragorn yeah. defeat him. Kick the crap out of him. But I don't think that but that's we wouldn't, what could have happened. I don't know if we would have seen that. Yeah. No. I don't think no. we would have gotten that conclusion. Like, how do you end it? Even if you, even do the whole thing well, even if the fight yeah. is not corny looking and like he doesn't lose, so he makes a big entrance, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, he's come in person. Oh my goodness, it's the end, right? And then in the fight sequence, it had been done well enough that it wasn't undermining him, which is always a huge risk, right? You know, yep. is he just going to look dorky um, and not scary at all once he's in action? Even if you succeeded in all of that stuff, yeah, then what happens at the end? Do we have him fighting Aragorn to a draw? And then Aragorn yeah. is like, what, like about to be killed by Sauron and then Sauron right. blows up, right? You right, know, poofs right. out because the ring poofs out. Or Sauron, or Aragorn's about to kill him and then he poofs out. Or whatever, there's just like in the middle of fighting and like we interrupt this combat with like the disintegration of one of the combatants. Yeah. Like, how do well, you do it? And I think also, like, the whole point of that scene and the text from Tolkien and what we know from the script is to draw the gaze away from Frodo so they can... So our gaze needs to be on Frodo. So because they're drawing Sauron out, we need to be in. So, like, by getting the audience to be more interested in the distraction, that's a real risk to what your actual climactic moment is. Right, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, again, it'd be really cool to see it. I want that, like, fan fiction scene. I'm thrilled there's a deleted scene. But, yeah, I think I probably would have made the same decision. Yeah. It's, it's, um, because I don't think you might remember the deleted scenes better than I do. I remember the fighting because I know, like, they replaced it with the troll, right, in the, in the final scene. But I don't think they had, they did, did they film it an end? A conclusion? I don't think they did. I don't think so. And I think that, like, we only see a few seconds of it, right? So, like, you know, I know Don Marshall's doing this whole campaign to get, like, the the next extended right. edition, which yes. 100% on board Don. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we know the footage exists, so wouldn't it be cool to have another cut with some of this in it, but really just more behind the scenes, <laughs> more deleted scenes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we've seen more than a few seconds of it. Yep. No. Okay. So, I, you know, who knows? It, it, it would be, it would just be interesting to see if they did mm-hmm. actually go further. I mean, I don't figure think they, out that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. what the plan was when they had that in, how they were going to end it. Um, yeah. How they're going to end him. I mean, I would. Yeah. Anyway. But um, so yeah. So that's that's a that's a, a sort of a big risk. And I like your point about. You don't want the audience to fall for the distraction that Sauron is is falling for. Um, And really, if you've got Aragorn, you know, this protagonist in whom we've gained a significant investment over the course of the three films in desperate, you know, single combat with Sauron himself, and we keep cutting away, you know, to basically to give that, to give viewers that, but yet be telling them, but people... This isn't actually the point. Like this doesn't this really isn't matter. The this, this doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. You shouldn't watch this. Yeah. <laughs> Ignore the climactic boss fight and pay attention instead to what's going on over here. I mean, that's 
a huge to these two <laughs> little guys you know one of them getting their finger bit off that's way more important. <laughs> that's way more but this is the real climax yeah but because yeah. of what we did see that scene was so such a big deal you know as soon as yeah. Gollum jumps on Frodo's back you're all losing your mind like because yeah. oh, <laughs> yes. that's where our that's where our emotional investment is it's not over yeah. at the black gate yep yeah, a little bit is you know I still care. Yeah, no, but. sure. I mean, we care whether they live or die uh, yeah. over there, and the, um, and again that set up so beauti- beautifully, right? The the yeah. the the sense and the clear sense the the clear sense in which the for Frodo line, mm-hmm. you know, anticipates the sacrifice. Like yeah. everyone's not trying to win. He believes no. they're all going to die. Yeah. Um, but let's do this, you know, let's, let's all, let's die chance. for Frodo's sake. Um, it was just beautiful. So, I mean, that, that's, that's conveyed really, really well. So yeah, it, it is. Um, anyway, I mean, all this is to say, I do think the depiction of Sauron was done really, really well. And it's fascinating to see all of these because it's a, they're, the choices that they made are really complex choices yeah. with some really fascinating analysis behind them analysis of um i mean you can see the question when you're you know you can see them asking the, the questions the kind of questions that we talk about a lot when we talk about adaptations right like what is it's not just about taking what happened in the book and trying to and show that on you know on the screen it's asking questions like okay so we're going to represent sauron what is the most important thing about Sauron? Like, what makes the yeah. character of Sauron in the books what the character of Sauron is in the books? And to say, okay, yeah, it, how can we convey that through our medium, right? And the flaming eyeball, you know, in general, again, with, with the provisos and, um, you know, the, 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 the exceptions that I, that I pointed to, I, they, they did that. I think that it yeah. really does capture a, a huge portion of what Sauron was in the book. And like we've said a million times, there's loads of different tools they have to do this. With a book, we have a lot of time and a lot of words that we get to sit with that and start to understand character, story, geography, plot, you know, Mm -hmm. all these things that need to happen. But there's so many different ways we can get that information with an adaptation. So it's not just bringing text to screen. It's bringing emotion to screen. It's bringing, you know, pacing. Like, where do these things need to happen? Do we need a line to get us there? Do we need a shot to get us there? Do we need music to get us there? So there's all these different things that can build what we get from a page. So you can see how many different interpretations there could be. You know, like we could have the same climactic moment in 17 different versions of this film and all of them could work Mm -hmm. and they're all very different from each other. So Mm -hmm. yeah, agreed. Like I think they made the right decisions for us to be at the place we needed to be emotionally while understanding what was at risk, while understanding the characters. And they did that by having this kind of continuity of imagery with the eye and things like that. Like even the Palantir, when they touched the Palantir, we saw the eye. You had the flash of of the eye. You know, like when they touched the ring, you had that flame that looked like the pupil of the eye. Like there was this kind of driven, consistent thing that was a threat, but it came in different ways. Yeah. But that that worked to drive yeah. us to that point. Yeah. Yeah, Before we leave Sauron, I want to ask you about the mouth of Sauron. Oh, man. Yeah, I see Namus Arcanum and Adrian uh, both talking about that. Yeah. Um, First of all, I absolutely agree. If I made a top 10 list of like moments in the film that I hated most 
and I, I don't like doing this and I don't like talking about, you know, to emphasizing that. But, but Aragorn decapitating the mouth of Sauron is absolutely on my list. Um, it is inexcusable, completely inexcusable. Um, it seems to me to indulge a really kind of... <sighs> Okay, so we're going to bring out the mouth of Sauron, and we're going to make him not only evil and malicious, but also physically disgusting, right? Mm. With the teeth and the weird mouth. I mean, that was, like, the creepiness of that was really effective, right? Yeah, I'm like, skip the end of Mouth of Sauron for a moment. What do you just think about, like, his introduction? Like, let's think about him. I guess we can say him. It. It, As a a character. Um, I... Um, I thought so okay I was not a big fan on the one hand I thought that the like the way that they they took his title the mouth of Sauron right semi name semi title um, and they put the entire visual focus on that, right? So there was a sense in which looking at the mouth of Sauron and just seeing like just mouth, right? You know, and, and, um, you know, evil, sinister, leering, you know, smirking, bleeding, disgusting, uh, uh, carnivorous, um, like all of the things that like as a symbol, right? The mouth of the mouth of Sauron, considered only as a symbol, I thought was a really interesting and powerful symbol. It powerfully conveyed the creepiness. Even the question of, like, is this a person? Is this a, what is this? Yeah. Is this a human? Is, yeah, I thought the execution was, execution was fantastic. Like, yeah. Yeah. Special effects. Wow. Making me feel unsettled. Wow. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, so, considered purely as an almost extra like separable symbol right Mm -hmm. um i liked the mouth of the mouth of sauron but um he is the element that you lose and lose completely i think in the film i don't think they even gestured at this element of the mouth of sauron when the mouth of sauron comes out in the book it becomes clear that he is going to be the one who is, who at least believes that he will be made the lieutenant. He's going to be made the emperor of the West, right? When Sauron conquers and enslaves everybody, he's cool. going to be their slave driver. Um, so he's um, less, in the book, he's not like a creature feature, right? Like that's not, that's not what he is. He's not a creature. He's... Yeah. Um, powerful and joyful about his power. He's a, he's, he is a glimpse of the, he, he invites them and the readers to imagine what the future victory of Sauron is going to look like. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, that's that, that element, they didn't even attempt that element. Um, you know, they made the voice of Sauron be, 
Like, basically, they, they seem to have almost literal, almost literalized it. Like, since he's a flaming eyeball and doesn't have a mouth, like, he's created or whatever, warped or twisted or whatever he did, he's created this freaky creature who's all mouth, right? And yeah. his job is just to speak forth Sauron's words or whatever. Um, whereas the mouth of Sauron is more like, um, sounds more like a, a sort of a cult title, right? Like, I am yeah. the spokesperson. It's about his own power, claiming his own power within the Sauron, you know, based hierarchy, World. right? Um, yeah. um, to say, I mean, and if you think about that, and that I think is, again, is exactly what Tolkien is inviting us to imagine, not just a future world that is going to be dominated by him as political figure, but as political figure slash cult priest of mm -hmm. the worship of Sauron, mm -hmm. essentially. And like, you don't, uh, I don't think you get that, you know? No, and, not at all. And again, this is not a character I was familiar with until well after I'd seen the films. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of just what I saw on screen, I thought it was an awesome effect. I thought that was so cool and, you know, wow. And then you start thinking about purpose and Aragorn decapitating him and didn't see the point of it. And then you find out the lore behind it, which I found fascinating. And I think somebody even mentioned here is basically just an Easter egg. But if you're going to do an Easter egg and not execute it, what's the point of that Easter egg? So if you're putting that character in and not giving it the backstory that we have familiarity with and not executing what it could accomplish in a filmic version, mm -hmm. not sure about that one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, again, in in their defense, they did cut it from the the cinema version, right? I mean, it's only in the extended. I think I'm pretty sure it's one of the extended scenes, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the extended yeah. scenes, but it's still an extended scene, and it was still a big deal. They talked about yeah. it a lot, so I I don't know. The things that make it into the extended to me are still as important as theatrical for the most part, you know, because mm -hmm. there's the decision mm -hmm. for them to be in there. Right. And I think theatrical is more of an uh, implication by standards. Like, we need it to be under three hours. Well, we'll get it as close to three hours as we can. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. So, yeah, that, that doesn't, um, to say it's not in this, I, you know, felt like it's only fair to mention that, but. Um, totally, totally. Uh, but, but, uh, but, yeah, totally agree. So, um and so, by the way, so this leading, what they did with the mouth of Sauron um, seems to me to lead to, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and call it a blunder. I think it is a blunder. Um, having Aragorn come up and unprovokedly decapitate the dude, right? Mm -hmm. um, Tolkien fans get upset about that because... That's essentially a war crime, right? I mean, when there is a, when there is a parley, um, and th I mean this, and this gets raised explicitly, right? Um, all, what happens in the book, is that he is, he sort of challenges Aragorn, like he speaks scornfully of Aragorn, and Aragorn just holds, his, doesn't say anything, but just right. holds He's his just gaze like... and looks into his eyes, and in response he flinches back and says, okay. I am a messenger and may not be molested. Like he, he hides behind the rules of war saying like, you can't, now Aragorn's not done anything. Right. 
other than look him in the eyes, right? Um, Which and is this, so damn powerful. I know, like, right? I mean, that'd he be makes so him, cool. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. But the but of course, if Aragorn like, could defeat the mouth of Sauron with a look. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? Yeah. Um, does more by looking him in the face, and somebody else would, you know, like actually attacking him with a weapon. Yeah. Um, but of course, it means that in the book, like in the mouth of Sauron's response to that moment, it explicitly raises the idea that like it's you know you can't um it is dishonorable to attack a herald um under a flag of truce um and um and so in that context to reverse that i mean to to just sort of take that and um take that in just just so completely in the opposite direction um by um by saying we're going to um uh, where the book emphasizes, particularly towards Aragorn, you know, and you know, it's not fair, right? But anyway, particularly towards Aragorn, that it's not right to to damage a messenger, and then instead we're going to have him come up and just without Destroy challenge him. or anything from behind. I mean, he rides up like behind, you know. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like, and then and then I'm going to decapitate him. Is such a startling. And I, and I don't even I, the only benefit of that change that I can see, like I can imagine people in the theater cheering when that happens because you've made the mouth of Sauron into this non-human vessel Grotesque. of creepiness and grossness, right? You've made him this thing which deserves to be executed, right? Um, and Bugs such Frank. that people would want to, yeah. Exactly. So, such that people would want to cheer when they see it stamped out and not be thinking like, oh, my goodness, that was a dishonorable act against an opponent under those circumstances. Um, but uh, but yeah, most because of the way in which that is so explicitly going again and again, like to some extent, you could say you could say the objections to that are people taking book stuff and projecting them onto the film. Right. You could say, I think it'd be a little bit of a strained argument, but you could say, in the film, they don't really depict him as a person, right? And so the same rules don't apply. So they're not saying Aragorn can kill emissaries and nobody cares about it. He is not an emissary. In fact, he is, again, he's this sort of like symbolic extraction of Sauron's own authority. And so to strike off the head of the non-human symbolic construct that is the mouth of Sauron is merely an act of open defiance against Sauron himself, which is perfectly laudable, right? And even noble on Aragorn's part. If I were like being hired to defend that position, that's kind of the, 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 the way I think I would go. It's the best argument I can think of in defense of it, but it's, does not strike me as a strong argument. But you probably wouldn't pick up that case. You would no, I don't, I don't think, so. I, don't think yeah. I would take yeah. that case. No, <laughs> yeah. no. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's um. Can, I mean, it's we see so we see so many scenes that are so carefully thought out, and you know, we're assuming that they're aware of all the lore behind it, and and it's really thoughtful how well they accomplish some of these things. This doesn't feel like one of those scenes. No, it, it does kind of yeah. feel like an afterthought of like, wouldn't it be badass if we did, you know? Right. And exactly. Okay. Kind of indulgence yeah. of a really base kind of vindictive feeling towards yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, this is, I mean, I do think that in general, um, 
one of the, I mean, some of the primary blemishes, and I'm not saying they're huge, but some of the primary blemishes of the Jackson films um, is a tendency towards just to get tone deaf in because mm. that's a tone deaf moment right you're you're totally just i mean it's not as tone deaf as the worst scene in the whole extended edition which is the witch king breaking gandalf's staff um oh. i mean a, a more tone how has that scene. not come up yet holy cow i mean i well so we're getting to the nazgul let's use that as a transition to the nazgul perhaps but um um good grief um yeah yeah um so um that's a good transition i think that's a good transition there we go now it's cool so so sauron Um, yep batty well executed good job mysterious dark nazgul risky but um yeah yeah um (laughs) larry i agree gluttonous denethor is also not also on my list of least favorite most tone deaf scenes but i'm not just going to start complaining that's not what we're about we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the novel. See, i love it i love it when we have differing opinions though and i'm like i love that scene where he just shoves food in his face because <laughs> it works so well for those of us not initiated i want you all to know i'm fairly initiated now i don't want you to think i'm a complete noob right. believe me i'm in it but i can remember when i was a noob yeah no it's important just like i'm always remembering yeah. back to my right. first reactions to the films you know yeah. um okay We're so writing that arc <laughs> With the Nazgul, I feel like we have to. I feel like in the film, as in the books, they break. It breaks down into two categories, right? We need to think about the Nazgul um, before, I like guess, the beginning in the Fellowship of the Ring, like up through the Ford of Bruinen, right? When they show up in the Shire and are pursuing them, um, you know, through Weathertop and then to the Ford of Bruinen, and then the Nazgul afterwards, the Nazgul with their winged steeds, the Nazgul leading the armies in battle. Um, the two as you know, as villain characters, right? As threats in the narrative, they're not playing anything like the same role in those two different segments of the story. And I think you can see clear differences in both book and film as to how those uh, the, the characters are being presented there. Um, do we get... Oh, wait, we do get speech from the Nazgul in the first segment at the Fort of Bruinen, right? The she-elf line. Yeah, the she-elf line, right? Yeah. And before that, we, oh, Baggins, Shire, but that's barely. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they do speak at Weathertop, Edith, not in the films. I don't think they do either. We because that, that's when we get the visual reveal when Frodo puts on the ring, and we get the visual reveal yeah. of the ghostly faces. We hear things. the we hear the black speech, but there yeah. aren't yeah there aren't lines. Yeah, and the yeah, black no. speech we only see when Frodo goes into their world, right? I don't think we get anything before that. No, just the no. screeching. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, we don't get speech from them in the um, in the book for sure. And we don't, I'm pretty sure they don't give, he, he, none of them get lines uh, on Weathertop in the, in the film. Um, uh, yeah, no, Madagascar, I'm sure they speak at the Ford of Bruinen 
Um, doesn't the Witch King say, give us the halfling she-elf? Uh, and then Arwen says, if you come want to claim come and claim him. him right? Yeah. yeah. And she's responding to their speech at that moment in the... If you want him, come and claim him. Yeah. Do they yeah. speak before that? Now I'm doubting it. Give us the halfling. That's absolutely what they say. Yeah. Yeah. If you want him, come and claim him. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I th- play it in your head. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> it. I think that's it. Um, I'm, I don't believe we get any prose from them, any lines from them earlier on. Um, so this is a fascinating thing because what they've done, the choice that they've made here is in the opposite direction, Right. Tolkien has Sauron be the remote, terrifying, only see from a distance villain, right? Mm -hmm. And the Ringwraiths are the present ones, right? I mean, they're interviewing Farmer Maggot and trying to bribe him, right? Um, They're showing up, they're chasing. I mean, they're the constant push. Yes. We get Gaffer Gamgee slamming the door in the face of one of them. You know, yeah. good day to you, sir. <laughs> right? I mean, Gaffer Gamgee him. tells him off. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we hear the Nazgul fumbling and being like, can you, you know, uh, well, no, it's interesting. We don't get the Nazgul's lines. We get a Gaffer's, the Gaffer's response. response. So we can guess at what the Nazgul said. Right. Um, but we don't. Um, uh, we don't get the actual lines of the Nazgul. When Farmer Maggot tells his story, we get the lines of them reported. We don't hear them speak like on screen, as it were, in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we Not only loud. get reported speech. We get reported speech from Farmer Maggot. We get um, indirect. Well, that's interesting. So we don't actually ever. Yeah. yeah. They're have in that position. I mean, again, like we know you can, you can put together, like by the string of Gaffer Gamgee's responses, you can, you can tell what they're saying, right? I mean, you can, yeah. you can easily supply the, uh, the, the half, uh, the other half of the Nazgul conversation. And if you did supply it, right, then it's um, kind of banal, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's asking, he's asking after you know, Mr. Baggins and like, do you know where he's gone? And can you give him a message for me? Like that's, that's what he's apparently what he's saying that Gaffer Gamgee is responding to. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So, but, but again, so Tolkien, you can see Tolkien flirting like, and in those moments, like with the Gaffer Gamgee moment, especially he's coming very, very close to having them just be speaking, you know, actors on stage, basically during in the in the in the narrative. Um, uh, but um, uh, but yeah, that's what I was um, that's what I was thinking, nerdly. Um, we do finally get direct speech from them again at the Fords of Brunin. The 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 film was copying that. Um, though of course it's not, and it obviously Arwen isn't there, uh, famously in the book, of course. Um, but the, um, and therefore the position that they are given is, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to overlook the difference in the position that the Nazgul are being given in that moment in film and book. 
because, like, yes, Armin is not there, but that's actually not the most important difference, I think. The most important difference is the stance that they are taking, right? Give us the halfling she-elf is the line they deliver, right? It's a, it's a command, right? Mm. Hand over that thing, um, because or else we're going to take it from you. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas to Frodo, they are commanding him. They're speaking the imperative mood, but they're tempting him, you know? Mm-hmm. They're tempting him. Um, uh, you know, uh, come back to Mordor, we will take you, right? You know, Frodo defies them, go back to Mordor and, try, and you know, follow me no more. Come back to Mordor, we will take you, right? Um, yeah. uh, the ring, the ring, they say. Um, so they don't say much. Oh, Adrian, you are so right. We do get them once. I had forgotten that. What? Yes, they speak in the book. Um, when they come to Crick Hollow, they knock on the door of Crick Hollow, and we do hear one of them say, "Open in the name of Mordor." Yeah, oh. yeah, very good. Yeah. I'd forgotten that. Yes, yes. Um, um, yep, yep. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, but anyway, but, but back to the Fort of Brunin. Do, do you see the difference of what I mean? Like Frodo at that yeah. point. Is he's not catatonic like he is in the yeah. film, right? He is, um, but he is almost completely in the shadow world at that time through the injury in his shoulder, right? And so, and he feel his the 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 conflict, right? The stress there is on Frodo's will. Yeah. Will he give Where it? He, will will yeah. he come back to them? Right. Um, That's the push. That's the push. The wound that he was given is designed not just to incapacitate him or something. It's designed to submit him to, like, subject him to their will. Yeah. And they're attempting to assert their will over him at that moment. And he defies them, you know, by, um, uh, you know, by Elbereth and Luthien the Fair, you shall have neither the ring nor me, says Frodo. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what compels them then to come across the stream and, and try to take it from him. Um, uh, so that's a very different version than what we get on screen Yes, for a lot of reasons I think I mean when I think about the Nazgul I don't think about them much I think I mean that in a good way but like I right. don't think about them much because I feel like their main purpose in the film is to just push forward they're just kind of the constant threat behind and they just want to chase and steal so right. they're the axe murderer in a horror film that you just want to run away from and you start to panic about, like, we just have to get away from you. There's no, like, you know, finesse. Yeah, you're so right. Think about that scene in the Shire when they're, like, ducking behind oh, trees yeah. with Nazgul popping out and, like, but if we turn and run the other direction, we'll be okay. And then they're going to converge and chase us down the pier and we're going to jump over onto the you know, onto the yeah. ferry, right? Like the Very axe murderer. Yeah. In that moment. And the and right after they meet Aragorn and we see the, the Nazgul standing over the beds, you know, and stabbing the pillows. And it's only much later that we realize that they're not there and they're not at risk. Right. But that is very much a, oh, we duped them, you know, like towels yeah. under the bedclothes right. got away from them. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and also where we get duped in the same yeah. kind of way. I mean, that that is a very... 
that for, as far as the trick that's being played on us as viewers, it's a very horror movie trick, right? Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's to a like, really great. Yeah, like oh, a weapon strikes, and then you you only see later on what it is actually struck, right? You know, yeah, yeah. It's when they pan back and you see Frodo's face sitting on another bed with different lighting. You're like, right? Oh, I see what you did there. Oh, hello. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a really great YouTube clip that I actually used in our October um, gathering in at Studio Lab where they talk about storyboarding that scene yes. and exactly how they wanted the camera angles to kind of make you feel as they put that together and how the emotion is depicted in, in the different stuff. So if anybody wants to seek that one out, that was pretty good fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's... Um, do you think, what do you think is the, I'm just trying to f understand it as like a, a cost benefit kind of choice, um, mm -hmm. the choice to make them more axe murderer type threat there at the beginning. They're like, I'm being chased through the woods by something. I mean, it's because at the same time they do, they're still ghostly. They do. They. Oh, they're you know, still scary. Yeah, they're yeah. very Dementor-like. We we don't see faces. Yeah. You know, we know this story that they were human once, but they've been corrupted. So there is this kind of sad fear. You know, like sad that that you've been corrupted and you lost your life. You were sucked into this horrible will, but also fear because you're real scary and I can't put a real human face on you. So there's that whole otherness kind of being a fearful right. thing. But I feel like everything with the Nazgul is a tool of Sauron. So their threat is because they are the foot soldiers of Sauron. They yes. don't need personalities. We just need Sauron's reach to be stronger and scary. And that's what they fulfill. So if they had given us more backstory or more detail, and I mean, you have to kind of walk the line between what can you trust that your audience will be willing to understand like you have to put a certain amount of faith for your audience to do the work and to understand what you're putting in front of them but you don't want to confuse them either mm -hmm. so you know maybe there was a point where they're just like let's just simplify not yes. give a lot of backstory just make them pacemakers i don't mean the thing in your heart i mean the people that push you forward right. <laughs> make them right. pacemakers um and threats because they're definitely still threats like you hear that music, you see them, oh, sweet Lord, you get the cold shivers. And Weathertop is still, I think, you know, in my top five scenes probably of just orchestration and threat is just stunning. So just because they're not super developed doesn't mean they're not great characters. Yeah. Um, but I yeah. think their purpose is to just be like the arm of Sauron. Yeah, they are, they are a threat. They do, I mean, I... I agree with you that the inclination seems to be towards making them a physical threat. Mm -hmm. Like the primary danger is that, because I mean, we see them stabbing, right? Like, so and apparently Sauron's the not around, right? You know, like right. we don't have a physical form of the actual big bad that is a threat. So we need somebody on the ground that is a physical form of the big threat. And they come in with swords mm -hmm. on Weathertop, right? I'm sorry. I, I keep emphasizing this because that itself is a change. The whole ax murderer thing is a significant change from Tolkien. Like there, yeah. um, the more uh, sort of vaguely spiritual nature of their threat is the primary emphasis in Tolkien. Like it's totally unknown. Like in the first 
you know, in book one, up to fight to the fort. The answer to the question, what would the Nazgul do? Like, what would happen to you if the Nazgul caught you? Yeah. What would they do to you? Is totally, the answer to that question is totally unknown. The hobbits certainly don't know it, right? Yeah. And of course, like, yes, Frodo is thinking they would take the ring and they would bring it back to Sauron, and that's the big, but what's going to happen to him, right? What would happen to Pippin and Merry and Sam? Uh, yeah. Would they take out a blade and chop off their heads? I, we don't. Maybe they would, but mm-hmm. we don't know that, and they don't know that. Do they even have weapons? They're not weapon. No weapons are described until the knife gets pulled at Weathertop, and then the knife itself is spooky, rather than mm-hmm. you know, a two, it's not a two-handed sword, right? It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a creepy knife. Um, but um, yeah, and Eric, I agree that non-physical fears are harder to portray on screen and non-physical threats are harder to portray yeah. on screen. You can build, I don't know, I mean, and this might be a really, really simplistic version from somebody who doesn't know that much about film, but it seems to me that like there are situations that you can create where you can do non-visual, non-violent threats really, really well. Like, for instance, cool. uh, like a... A contagion film, right, where you might be exposed to a deadly contagion at any point, and um, and if uh, and if you are, then like you know, if one thing uh, uh, you know hits you, then you're you know, and, and like the the suspense and the tension. I'm thinking the the thing that I immediately have in my mind when I think of that is that um, the Doctor Who episode at the end of season four, um, the water one on Mars. Um, when like the sentient water is like breaking in and taking over their bodies. And if like one drip of water hits you, you're dead, right? You know, that you're done. Um, And like the water is splashing everywhere and they're trying to protect them. So like that is terrifying, right? Completely. Even though, uh, you know, there, there, there can be physical violence, but that's so much scarier than physical violence. Right. Um, But um but that's like you have to frame that in the entire. Like that has to be the whole structure of things, right? To um, it's anyway. I, I don't know how they might have done a totally non-physical threat, but they seem to have made the choice to say, you know what, like these bad guys who are creepy, like they still do the they they look like the Grim Reaper. They're they're ghostly. Yeah. They're scary. There's there's definitely preternatural fear going on here. But at the end of the day, the hobbits are terrified of having being stabbed by swords, right? Which almost happens at Bree, or like, oh, it appears to happen at Bree, but then doesn't, which looks like is what, what was going to happen at Weathertop, right? It's totally like the scariest of all the things, though, right? Like, you have an axe murderer that's going to kill you and chase you, so you have to just keep running, but you also don't know that the axe murderer is human. It, they could right. have superpowers. They don't have a face. They go into other worlds, like... Right. It really is kind of like the scariest of the scary by not knowing something. If somebody said Darth Vader was made more scary just by the breathing sounds, 100%. You know, yes. like your villain can be so much scarier just by like hearing the footstep, you are terrified. Yes. That it's like the, the Jaws school... theme, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those yes. notes start done for. Yeah. 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 Um, and why like there's movies like The Mist or The Fog or, you know, it doesn't have to be a physical thing. Like sometimes the unknown is way more scary and these guys kind of embody all of that, but Mm -hmm. you're right. The actual threat is physical. The actual concern is knife through my chest. Yeah. 
Yeah, that seems to be. And again, I'm not trying to say that they were like, it was like hideously reductionist or anything, but it does seem that was the choice that they made to invest. Like they, they, they made the choice to invest the Nazgul with that flavor of terrifying, mm-hmm. right? Of, 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 uh, of terror. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, um, the cost that there are benefits to that. The benefit, I mean, it, it has a visceral effect, right? <laughs> Horror movies do this for a reason, right? <laughs> like it, 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 it works. Um, but the cost to it is that you do lose something of the, the sort of spiritual stature of the ring wraiths. And you do lose something even about like, therefore by extension, one of the functions of Frodo's wound and the interaction, like the interactions with the Nazgul, um, sort of the overall shape of the interactions with the Nazgul, um, in the book is that, um, you, his wound and what happens to him as a result is a way of introducing us to basically, it's like, um, it's like a primer in what the ring does to you, right? Um, Want to know the risk of having the ring, right? Like here's a kind of crash course in it. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, 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 the stab, it's not, I'm not saying it's identical. And what happens with the ring and the relationship with the ring is, is more complicated and there are more subtleties to it. But the way in which Frodo is being taken into the spiritual world. It's like a radical acceleration of the thin and stretched process that Bilbo describes in chapter one Ooh. of what having the ring for 70 years did to him. What has happened with Gollum, which again is different. It's not the same thing. Um, right. But uh, the way in which Frodo is nearly um, is nearly brought into the um, you know the, the dominion of Sauron's will through the wound of the Morgul knife is, um, is again, it's like a little snapshot of this is the kind of danger, right? That, um, that Sauron and the ring pose, which is much more than just getting stabbed. Right. And it's much more even than just like political power. Right. Um, uh, it, there, there are those threats as well, but there's also this other threat of like your your own will being turned, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and, and that, losing who you are, and, and that, losing who you are, yeah. And that is a real, you know, the loss of identity. I feel like is a real theme of who are you. First of all, is one of the best mm-hmm. things that you can do for a character, establishing who this person is, what their line is for good and evil you know will they be tempted will they stay to the the heroic path and the fact that there's something out there that could corrupt that and threaten that kind of personal identity that's really powerful putting all that into one character yeah a group but you know powerful yeah 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 so um so again that to me that's the cost right that's the cost of that particular choice with the Nazgul. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, could you have, but of course this is always the thing, right? And this is always the thing that I feel like people who complain about movies and especially about adaptations tend not to take the next step and say, well, okay, you're, you wish that they hadn't lost this one element, right? That they hadn't made this particular choice, which did push to the side, this aspect of the story that you really liked, but 
what would have been the cost of trying to achieve that? Yeah. Um, what else would you have lost? Yeah, because you would lose something else in the film. And the thing, I'm thinking of what you were saying before about pacemakers, right? Um, I think that's the thing that you would lose. If they're not axe murderers chasing you through the woods, um, all of the immediacy of their, especially the way they had to accelerate that in the yeah. books, and, com in the films compared to the books. And the way that we had to structure the trilogy, you know, we, we had to have three films that yeah. worked independently because there was a year between audiences seeing them. So they had to stand alone. We knew it was going to step into the second one, but there had to be rising action that followed the three act movement, you know, all these yeah. things that just kind of had to fall. So you have to choose what your drivers are. Right. And that has to move the story forward. It doesn't mean it has to be an axe murderer. Like it, it could right. be an actual journey leaving home. It could be, you know, whatever. There's loads of stuff that could actually drive it forward. But bringing in an axe murderer, that's a real good way to move a story forward. Well, it, real, it accelerates things. Yeah. Immediate yeah. And, way and, to get them from A to B. You're right. Gets, even gets them physically moving. I mean, the way yeah, that they go from... exactly the maggots you know farmer maggots cornfield right through to, to brie. brie right and then through the wilderness to, to weather top and then the, to rivendell i mean, I mean it's you, such a, a yeah. pointed journey and they're yeah. the ones that actually get them through that and that's first half of the film mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. first third first half first yeah 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 third really um, They're the ones most. that really make that happen. And yeah. that also really establishes them for the rest of the trilogy. So whenever we see the Nazgul, we're all like, oh, God, you know, because right. that right. threat is established so strongly in the first third. Yeah. We know something bad's going to come up. And I don't think even though the effect is different, that is the sort of the axe murderer effect versus the much more nebulous spiritual threat um, to will and identity we were talking about from the book. I'm not sure that I would agree with the state with, with saying something like they get simplified or you know sort of stripped down in the films. Yeah. Like it's, it's I I, it's that's I don't think that's quite true. I think it's quite true. It's I mean I again yes it's simpler. But, yeah, I don't think they're know. simplified. Like they're really sophisticated characters mm -hmm. there's just not as much detail as we have in the text but and again then they're doing different they're doing different things and and of course mm -hmm. yeah i mean as several people are pointing out i mean it's um uh it is there's i mean the the pace that you just don't have time i mean again everybody complains well, not everybody complains but there was much commentary there was much discourse on how long these movies were when they came out um and yet I mean, holy cow! There's so much that is skipped. I mean, they so are—they are ten percent of the story, and so to try to do the same story in ten percent of the time is a massive, massive mm -hmm. challenge. There, you—you you can't do everything, um, and so you have to pick your—you have to pick your battles. And using, using the Nazgul, they made sense. Because look, even Tolkien uses them as pacemakers like even mm -hmm. i mean that's literally the role that they have in the books as well i mean it's because the black riders are chasing them that Fr frodo plans to leave bag end and go to his new home in crick hollow and hang out there for a while before then eventually moving off into the 
open-ended exile that he anticipates he's going to be moving into, right? Um, mm -hmm. But because they're being chased by the Black Riders, he says, I've made up my mind not to wait even one day at Crick Hollow, but to continue out. So the fact that their journey accelerates, the fact that their journey is then also complicated. Why do they go through the Old Forest and end up with the adventures in the Old Forest and the Barrow Downs? Because the Black Riders are chasing them and they can't just go by the road, right? So, yeah. um, you know, why do they go through the wilderness and end up, you know, going through the swamps to Weathertop? I mean, because, again, the Black because Riders are chasing the them. Riders. So, um, th this is that, you know, although he doesn't, Tolkien doesn't do does not give the Black Riders an axe murderer feel, and he doesn't have the threat of the Black Riders be death by pointed objects. Um, he nevertheless, I mean, they are serving a, 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 a very similar role for Tolkien's story as they are yeah. in the films. And so it doesn't feel like, a, although a, that, that change is a huge change that they've made about the, the sort of the nature and quality of the Nazgul, I don't think that a great deal is lost as far as the story goes there. Um, I mean, again, yes, it's, yeah, okay. Yes, some things are lost, some things are changed. But um, anyway, I think that that's really interesting uh, mm. in how that's how that's done. Um, we're running out of time, but Nazgul at the end, I think we get less. My impression is that the the film does less. The Witch King... I get, as I said, when he comes back, he is buffed. He is he is um, on a whole other level when he returns and to lead the armies. Um, and I feel like that gets more of an emphasis in the book than well. it does in the films. Especially since one of the things that I remember disliking very much when um, I saw the films, like from conversations that I remember in like the week after you know, the return of the King came out. One of the things that I disliked most about the siege of Minas Tirith was the way they purely physicalized the threat. It's like they wanted to make them into flying ax murderers yeah. for the city, right? Like the, that, that the threat from the Nazgul was primarily that they would fly in and take out the catapults, you know, yeah. um, swoop in and grab people off the walls and drop them, you know, they, um, they definitely lost their mysterious fear. They were yes. purely army fear. You know, they right. they were another thing that could join the army and kill you. Yeah, uh, they were a, they were a rather threatening air force, um, yeah. which the good guys don't have until the eagles come in right at the end. Um, but the um, but they absolutely lost the um, simply like we are dominating the city by putting it under an oppressive pall of fear and despair, um, which is what well, I guess just flying overhead and exerting this spiritual influence over the city is the primary role that the Nazgul have in the books. Um, that's a real challenge to depict on screen, of course, yeah. and the choice there and that it just, but, but it just felt to me, um, I did not have the same conversation. I remember not having the same, even though you could say, you can see the parallel, right? We're going to take the, the dread of the Nazgul and we're going to turn it into axe murderer fear, right? Fear mm -hmm. of somebody chasing me through the woods with a pointed weapon, right? Um, and you can see the parallel between that and we're going to take the, the despair and fear and dread of the Nazgul and turn it into 
you know, flying bombers that can, you know, take out our weapons and destroy us from above. Um, right. I, I, those seem to me to be this to be the same kind of move that um, that the films are making. And yet. Um, the second time, it doesn't feel to me like it works as well. I feel like more is lost. I feel like there is a there yeah. is a greater deficit. This, that choice did not seem nearly as successful in doing the same things, and I, I don't fully understand why. Well, I think they're kind of more the primary threat at the beginning. We don't fully understand Ring and Sauron and Mordor and mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. the depth and and the spread of the evil that came from the ring. So we have this really tangible, visible, present threat early on. By the time we get to the third film, all the other threats are becoming a lot more realized. We realize how big this world is and what's actually at stake. The Nazgul suddenly is kind of a secondary character because the real threat has raised up. So I feel like there's just kind of this arc of like, all right, first one, we need them to be the big bad until we actually meet the big bad. Right, right. Like Adar versus Sauron in Rings of Power. Right, right. Um, so you think then that part of the effect that I'm feeling there is that the films have displaced the Nazgul deliberately in a way which I'm not like res- re- responding to because that again that Tolkien's response to like but now the big bad right is is to, get, to buff them right, um, right. it's like Nazgul 2.0 more than twice as bad as as a <laughs> big a threat as Nazgul 1.0 um, and the films instead of just doing that right instead of just saying like okay it's still the Nazgul but 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 hang on right there's more right um, instead of that you see the films kind of not sidelining in the sense of removing them, but but sidelining, but bringing everybody else up. Right. Like early on, they stood on their own and they were the scary. And now we realize they're part of an army of scary. So they're still big, bad. I I don't know if this is right or not. I'm musing, but I could see that kind of being the, the shift of that, that threat. It's not as singular. It's especially interesting to me with the choice, which I always thought was an, a remarkable choice. I didn't feel it to be necessarily a failure, but a remarkable choice mm-hmm. to introduce the character of Gothmog, right? To mm-hmm. have the armies being commanded by this brand new weird bad guy figure whom we knew nothing about and didn't really get to know until he died, except he never dies he just like can keeps dragging on i know he gets eventually gets decapitated but um in a rather haphazard way uh anyway what the point is he is made the center of the army like the actual orc army is attacking right um and um that that was one of the you know i i, I talked about you know moments in the film where i can where like a line of text springs to mind, right? Like I, I can see what they're thinking. Yeah. There were some moments in the Lord of the Rings films where a line of text spring, springs ironically to my mind, right? Um, 
and that was one that I could never resist. Um, like so, Tolkien said, the narrator says in the Battle of Pelennor Field, like when the Rohirrim come in and they turn the tide and everything, it then says, but it was no, uh, but it was no brigand or orc chieftain that you know led the armies. Like it was the Witch King, and he has another plan, right? And he comes and, um, and, and you know he. And I was like, in the films, I'm like that line of me. As soon as we're introduced, that 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 line immediately springs to my mind. And I'm like, well, You're like, I guess there is a brigandor and orc chieftain who is in <laughs> fact leading the armies here in this case. Um, but um, so anyway, like it's, but that's exactly the thing. Like that in the book, explicitly, the witch king is the center of the whole thing. Like he is the mm-hmm. he is the center of the even like the coming up of the. Uh, of the the armies of the Southrons, which of course is done so much like the you know the charge of the Mumak, uh, the Mumakil and everything as the orcs are fleeing, um, is of course made this big huge dramatic thing uh, in the in the films. Um, whereas in the books we don't we don't get that 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 happens, but we don't really get that with anything mm-hmm. like the kind of dramatic focus that it, it happens in the films. Um, but all of that stuff has the Witch King's personal stamp on it, like everything that you know happens, like the striking down of Theoden, of course, which he does personally, um, but all of the rest of the stuff, the apparent victory, the the destruction of the gate. I mean, he, the image of the gates being destroyed by the ram, and then not having a a, a bunch of trolls come through. Mm. But then have there be nothing, have there be silence, and then the Witch King alone rides through on horseback, right? Um, yeah. Oh, man, like, so yeah. cool. But again, like, the point is, the Nazgore are still the big bads, right? And the Witch King, in yeah. particular, is kind of coming into his own as the big bad, the lieutenant of Sauron, the representative of Sauron on the front lines, Um and the film did seem to make the choice to again sideline is too strong a verb, but right. Um, but they don't get that moment, and that no, moment's so good. But I don't know. I, maybe it is kind of they want the focus to be not on that. They want everybody else to kind of start to blend in, so the bad becomes real bad, and the yeah. only bad can be Sauron. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's but that's it, a, that's one you would miss. Like, oh, that would be a good scene. Yeah, it was. I. Um, that was among my chief disappointments, like things that I wanted to see that didn't happen. You know, Mm -hmm. there were not a huge list of those, like some things I knew, like I wasn't expecting Tom Bombadil. I wasn't expecting the Barrow Whites. I wasn't, I mean, like I knew things had to be cut. I knew they couldn't do everything. Um, so there were a whole bunch of things that I came in, not like daring to hope I would see and therefore wasn't disappointed when they didn't happen. Um, that was one where I was, um, I was bummed, bummed uh, that we didn't yeah. get the Witch King coming through the gates. But, but again, but it's, it's clearly bummed. a choice. It's, yeah. but, not, but not just bummed because it's something that you loved. It's, it's also bummed because you can see how that would work. And those are the ones that I think hurt a little bit more. And, you know, I was talking about the 37 different options for, you know, filming the same scene. That's where we can all make different decisions and stuff can work. Like I do think what they chose and what we saw on screen worked, but it's those moments that you can see and you're like, but that would have worked too, you know? And those are the ones you get a little bit more riled up by. Right. Because it would have been real fun to see that. Do you think so here this is me just trying to be fair, right? Like 
not to focus again. It's always the temptation when you love the source material to have what is not there looming so strong in your mind that you miss what is there. Right. Or like, okay, yes, they made a choice to not do this thing, but they made that choice for a reason. Right. They weren't just saying, we know you love this scene and we don't give a crap. We're not giving it to you out of spite. Right. Right? Like it's like they didn't do that because they chose something else instead. Right. So what is the thing that they chose instead? What is the, what was the gain for which that was the collateral damage, you know? And, and it's, and I wonder, I I don't know if this makes sense, but um, I think what they gained was the focus on, especially on the Rohirrim, the charge of the Rohirrim. Mm -hmm. Um, the charge of the Rohirrim is awesome in the books. The charge of the Rohirrim is even more awesome. In the, that is to say, it is even more in the spotlight in the films. Yeah. And um, the very line I was just quoting, the, you know, but, but it was no brigand or orc chieftain that led the, um, by undoing that, right? By not giving that kind of moment. Again, like that sentence that I'm quoting starts with the word but. And it comes during the charge of the Rohirrim, right? As the Rohirrim are charging uh, onto the field and their horns are blowing and the people of Gondor are saying, Rohan has come, Rohan has come. The narrator interrupts with a but sentence, which brings our attention back to the to the villain, right? Yeah. But the Witch King is still in charge and the Witch yeah. King still has plans. And then the Witch King comes and kills Theoden, right? Uh, and then... Um, uh, and then we see, you know, and then we, we sort of lose the focus on the Rohirrim. We get the focus on Aemir and his discovering Eowyn apparently dead, and then you know, ride now to ruin and the world's ending. Um, you know, anyway, like so, we get that stuff. But again, the the focus of the battle. I'm trying to think if this is a fair thing to say. I've never really yeah. formulated this in this way. The fo- Tolkien's focus of the battle is the bad guys and how they respond or can can respond to the bad guys as merlin has 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 opinions on this subject (laughs) sorry baby's awake i might have to run for yeah no oh man we're over time anyway okay tell you what let's come back to let's come back we we never got to do the orcs or saruman and i think that we should talk about both of those things I'm right. literally disappearing. Bye, guys. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> Bye, everybody. And that's all. Uh, thank you to uh, Maggie's child for reminding me that we are over time. We got to run. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, we'll do some more talk about villains. We never did get to talk about Saruman, and I want to talk about the orcs uh, as well. So um, that'll be uh, that'll be a fun follow-up discussion. Uh, in the meantime, thanks. See you guys next week. Uh, have a good day. Bye now.